Good morning. For those of you who may be new and, and don't know me, my name is Jerry, and I'm one of the pastors here at Rock Prairie. Today is a very special day. We are honoring two men who have for many years served faithfully in the role of deacon and are now retiring from those roles. And it's an honor for me to have the opportunity today to speak on such a special occasion. As we get started, open your Bibles with me, if you will, to the book of Hebrews, chapter 12. We're going to be looking at verses 1 and 2. While you're finding that, for those of you who do know me, you know that generally I like to open my sermons with some kind of a story to kind of grab your attention. Uh, so today I'd just like to start by saying I, I got nothing. So <laughs> Hebrews 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. As we begin to unpack this passage this morning, I'd like to begin by just focusing on that very first phrase, therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us. And as I think about that phrase, the question that comes to mind right away is, who are these witnesses? And it's that word, therefore, that is going to help us answer that question. Because there's this really old saying that whenever we encounter the word therefore, we need to ask the question, what's it therefore? And in this case, it's pointing us back to what came before it. In almost every case, that's what happens. But the word therefore tells us that the main point refers back to something that happened previously, which in this case is Hebrews chapter 11, a passage known as the Hall of Faith. In this chapter, the author of Hebrews reminds us of a number of people who were known for their faith, and they, these, these people of great faith, are the witnesses that are being spoken of in the first part of chapter 12. But what are they witnesses of? Because when I think of this great cloud of witnesses, I have this visual in my head of like a stadium in heaven and all the saints of old are sitting in the stadium kind of watching what's going on on the earth. That's the image that I get in my mind, kind of like the tricentral cheer block when it was still important, like back in the 80s. <laughs> but at the same time, I know that can't be exactly right, because those saints, those great men and women of faith from the past, they're with Jesus now. They're in the presence of their Savior. They're experiencing the fullness of what it means to, to be in God's grace. They're witnessing the glory of God firsthand, and in that setting, I fully believe that Jesus has their full attention. I don't believe they're watching what's happening on the earth. I would also say that there's no place that I can find in Scripture that indicates that people in heaven can witness what's going on on the earth. The closest we might come is Revelation chapter 6, where the martyrs, those who have died defending their faith, are awaiting God's judgment on those who took their lives. And in that passage, uh, John says that the martyrs are in the presence of God and they're calling out, how long must we wait for you to avenge our blood? 
on those who dwell on the earth. But even in that passage, it's not clear that they can actually see current events unfolding on the earth. They're just aware that their blood has not yet been avenged, right? So let me say that again. I don't believe anywhere in Scripture clearly states that people in heaven can see current events unfolding on the earth, and I really don't believe they can. So then we're back to our original question. If these great men and women of faith are up in heaven and they're not watching us or cheering us on, then what are they witnesses of? And to answer that question, I think we need to take a quick walk through Hebrews chapter 11. So turn back a page and let's walk through that now. Hebrews chapter 11 opens with a definition of faith. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. In other words, faith is the fact that despite, we haven't se- despite the fact that we haven't seen God or yet experienced all that He's promised, we believe that He is who He says He is, and we live like we believe that. It's the assurance of things hoped for, that's belief, and the conviction of things not seen, that means living like we believe it. Living by our convictions actually changing the way we behave because of what we say we believe, that's the evidence of faith. The chapter then goes on to talk about a number of people who lived their lives with that kind of faith. Verse 4 mentions Abel, who by faith gave a better sacrifice than his brother. Verse 5 mentions Enoch, who was so faithful that he was taken to heaven without experiencing death. Verse 7 talks of Noah, who likely spent about 100 years building an ark to save a remnant while people passed by and mocked him daily. Verse 8 speaks of Abraham, who left behind his homeland to follow God, even though he had no idea where God was taking him. Verse 11 speaks of Sarah, Abraham's wife, who conceived a son in her old age. Abraham and Sarah were promised a family of descendants as large as the, as numerous as the stars in the sky or the grains of sand on the seashore. And they never lived to see that with their own eyes, but they believed it. Verse 17 mentions Abraham's son Isaac and his grandson Jacob, who continued to believe that they would have descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, even though they didn't live to see it with their own eyes. Verse 22 speaks of Joseph, who was sold into slavery by his brothers and was spent time in prison for a crime he didn't commit, but he remained faithful to God. Verse 23 speaks of Moses, who led God's people out of Egypt. 31, Rahab the harlot, who was the only person in Jericho who submitted to the one true God. And now we're going to actually read, picking up with verse 32. And what more shall I say? For time will fail me if I talk of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, and Samuel and the prophets, who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight." Women received back their dead by resurrection, and others were tortured, not accepting their release so that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others experienced mockings and scourgings. 
Yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. And all of these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised, because God had provided something better for us, so that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us. See, these people, they knew God's promises, and they believed Him, and it impacted how they lived. They had faith. Even when they didn't live long enough to experience all that God had promised, even when they were mocked, even when they suffered and died for what they believed in, they still did believe God's promises and trusted Him to fulfill them. So what are they witnesses of? Well, it's not really about what they're witnesses of. It's about what their lives witness to. Their life stories witness or testify to us about the unsurpassed value of living a life of faith. This great cloud of witnesses, these people who knew and loved and believed God, even when they experienced incredible trials and had their lives taken from them, their lives witnessed to us the unsurpassed value of walking in faith. It was worth everything to them, up to and including their very lives on this side of eternity, because they knew that what was waiting for them on the other side of eternity was infinitely more valuable. God himself and their citizenship in his kingdom as sons and daughters was waiting on the other side. And so they lived the entirety of this life preparing for that one. Therefore, the passage says, having the examples of all these great men and women of faith to encourage us, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. I want to stop here for just a minute and talk about specifically the audience for this book. Who was it written to? The author of Hebrews was writing to Hebrews, to Jews who had come to faith in Christ. These are people who, because of their professions of faith in Christ, were living in a society that was incredibly hostile to them. They had likely been cut off from their extended families, by, from their relatives. They would have been considered traitors to the Jewish people. Just as Jesus was rejected by the Jews, so too his followers were rejected by their Jewish relatives. And not only that, this book was written during a time when the Roman Empire had no use for Christians. The emperor Nero was spreading vicious rumors, blaming the, the great fire in Rome on the Christians, even probably to deflect his own responsibility. But the end result of that was that even their Gentile neighbors wanted nothing to do with them. They would have looked on them with disdain. So this was not a time of peace and comfort for Christians. Many Christians had had their property confiscated. Many had been murdered. More than likely at this time, uh, the letter to the Hebrews was written. Peter had already been 
murdered. Paul either had been or soon would be, so even their heroes of the faith had been taken from them, and they were completely demoralized. And as a result of this persecution, many Jewish believers began to, to think back on earlier days in their lives, and they were remembering the comfort that rituals can often bring, that temple worship was something familiar to them, offering sacrifices was something familiar, the priestly system was familiar, and some of them were beginning to re-engage in those things as ways to escape the mounting persecution. It was just simpler being a Jew than it was being a Christian. They were tempted to quit Christianity because it was hard. It was really hard. It was far beyond any persecution that any of us in this room can envision. We've certainly never experienced it. The emotional, financial, and physical toll paid by these people for following Jesus was incredible. And it's in that context that Paul reminds these, or not Paul, sorry, the author of Hebrews, which probably wasn't Paul, reminds these Jewish Christians of the mighty men and women of faith encompassing this great cloud of witnesses who had gone before them many of whom did lose their lives for the terrible crime of believing in God, of believing his promises that he would send a savior, that he would redeem a people for himself, and that those who endured to the end would enjoy eternity with him as sons and daughters in his kingdom. It's also in that context that the author of Hebrews goes on to say, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us race, run with endurance the race that is set before us. In other words, he's saying we're not alone. There are others who have gone before us who have endured these same things. They are now receiving their eternal rewards. They've finished the course and now it's our turn to run the race. I love that the author refers to the Christian life as, or at least compares it to running an endurance race, because in a lot of regards, those things have a lot of parallels. Running is hard, and anyone who's ever done an endurance race knows that there's a point in every race that you consider quitting. Who are my runners? Got runners in here? Yeah. Personally, I'm not a runner, as you can tell. <laughs> but believe it or not, I ran oops, both cross-country and track in high school. Or in junior high, sorry. And I was pretty good at it. I had a lot of ribbons, but I hated it. And I puked at the end of every single race. <laughs> Gary Rue and Rick Grimmie were my coaches, and they called me Mr. Puker. <laughs> and so when I got to high school, I never wanted to run another distance race. But my wife loves to run. Still to this day, she enjoys running. Uh, she enjoys pushing her body to see what it can achieve. And many times I've seen her come home after a long run and collapse on the living room floor. And I think, why, why does she enjoy that? <laughs> As I'm licking the Dorito dust off my fingers. You know? <laughs> Pastor Craig is preparing to run a race in North Carolina that's five miles long, which might not sound that bad, but it starts at the bottom of a mountain and it ends at the top of a mountain. 
Why would anyone do that? I'm pretty sure that's exactly why cars were invented. So no one had to run up mountains anymore. But I think that's part of the appeal, don't you? For endurance runners, that's part of the appeal, to do something that most people wouldn't even attempt. And even if you're not a runner, have you ever just talked to someone about what it's like to run a long race? I have. And they always say the same thing, that there's a point during the race where their body begins to revolt, and they want to quit. And their natural inclination is just to, to stop running, to just give up, because it hurts. And they begin to fight that battle in their head. Is this really worth it? And that's, in a lot of ways, the situation that these Jewish Christians found themselves in. Their lives were hard, and it seemed to just drag on. They were suffering, and they were remembering how simple their lives seemed to be before Christ. And they were wondering if following Jesus is really even worth it. They wanted to quit. So the author here says, don't quit. Remember, those who have run this race before you, be encouraged by their courage. Be encouraged by their steadfastness. Be encouraged by their faith and press on. Run with endurance the race which is set before you. And then he gives them two keys to running it successfully. First, he says, instead of quitting, lay aside the encumbrances, and the sins which so easily entangled. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on talking about sins that so easily entangle because I think we pretty much understand that. We understand how sin gets a hold of us. We understand how that hinders our relationship with God. But what may be a little harder to grasp is the phrase, lay aside every encumbrance. Because encumbrances aren't necessarily bad things. In the case of a runner, it might be something as simple as an evening out with friends. They might have to say no to that because staying out late with friends might affect their training schedule. They might have an early run the next day and they're preparing for something big. They might have to say no to food they would enjoy because it might affect their energy level or it might cause them to gain ounces and this could, this could affect their, their ability to run well. It could go on. This list could go on and on. True runners are very self-disciplined people. They have to turn away from encumbrances, things that might be good things, but would hinder their progress toward their ultimate goal. So the serious runner's life is truly a life of self-denial. And why do they put themselves through all of that? It's to finish the race, right? They do it to get the prize at the end. They endure all of the pain and the self-denial because they know the glory and the satisfaction that's waiting on the other side of the finish line. The Apostle Paul writes about this in 1 Corinthians 9. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things, and they do it to receive, to receive a perishable wreath but we an imperishable. Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air, 
But I discipline my body and I make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. It's exactly what the author of Hebrews is telling us about the Christian life. That it's a life of self-denial, of setting aside things that hinder or encumber us and sin which so easily entangles us. And not all of those encumbrances are bad things in and of themselves. Let me give you an example from right here at Rock Prairie. A few months ago, we had our focus groups. And during one of the groups that I had the privilege of leading, one young husband and father who attends Rock Prairie said this. He said, I've resigned from every board and committee I used to serve on for different organizations in this community because I'm so excited about what God's doing in my family and in our community through Rock Prairie. I want to devote all of my energy to being a part of that ministry. Now listen, there wasn't anything wrong with this young man serving on any of those outside boards and committees. It wasn't sinful. In fact, as Christians, it's often good for us to participate in outside boards and committees and things, right? Because we get to be salt and light in our community in those ways. But for this young man, at a particular time in his busy life as a husband, a father, and a business owner, those things had become encumbrances. They were weighing him down and preventing him from participating in even better things, things with kingdom purpose like growing his own faith, growing his family's faith, and participating in ministry. He wanted his investment of time and resources to have kingdom impact. Why? Because he's reaching for an imperishable crown. He knows that what's on the other side of this life is infinitely better than what's on this side. The Lord himself is on the other side. What's on the other side is eternal. It's imperishable. It won't get old. It won't spoil. It will never end. That's a great example of encumbrance. So the first way this author says we run this race called life is by laying aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. And the second way is by looking to Jesus. Look at verse 2. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has set down at the right hand of the throne of God. As we begin to unpack this verse, I want you to know that the author of Hebrews is not unsympathetic to the suffering of the people that he's writing to. He knows they're under severe persecution. He knows their lives are hard. Most likely, whoever he was, he was enduring the same persecution because more than likely, he was a Jew as well. And he was suffering everything that the people he was writing to were suffering. So he spends all of chapter 11 emphasizing to his audience that they aren't the first to endure such trials. These Old Testament saints who were their ancestors suffered the same persecution for the same reasons. But there's a strange detail tucked into chapter 11 that, as I was studying this, I've never caught it before. It's in verse 24. Look at beginning in chapter 11, verse 24. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God 
than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, considering the reproach of Christ greater than the riches than the greater than riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Anything about that passage strike you as strange? It should, because Moses lived 1,500 years before the birth of Christ. Yet the author writes, Moses considered the reproach of Christ greater than all the treasures of Egypt. In other words, he would rather be rejected and persecuted for following Jesus than to have all the wealth he could have had as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. But how could Moses follow Jesus 1,500 years before Jesus was born? This detail is here for a reason. It's because these Old Testament saints, they didn't know exactly what it was going to look like when the Redeemer came, when Jesus came. They didn't know exactly who he was going to be. They didn't know when exactly he was going to come. But what they did know was that God had promised that the Redeemer would crush the serpent's head. And they believed. They believed. They were looking forward to Christ. And though not seeing him clearly, they believed and endured in faith even to the point of death. Yet the author knows that some of his Hebrews that he's writing to are tempted to turn back to their Jewish roots. He knows they're tempted to return to taking lambs to the priest to be offered as sacrifice on their behalf. They're tempted to give up on Christianity and to return to life under the old covenant. So he's saying to them, why would you do that? Jesus has come. He has endured the cross. He has been the sacrificial lamb for you. And now he sits at the right hand of the Father. The promise of the Redeemer that these Old Testament men and women were looking so forward to, it has been fulfilled. And there is joy in heaven. You don't need the priest any longer. The Holy Spirit now dwells permanently within you. You yourselves are a royal priesthood. The great cloud of witnesses, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised. They strained to see it and would have given anything to live under this new covenant. And the author here is saying, you are under the new covenant. You are under the blood of Christ. That promise that they couldn't see clearly that they were looking forward to, it has happened. It has been fulfilled. So we run this race of endurance by setting aside encumbrances and the sins which so easily entangle and by fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. I love that phrase. It's because of Jesus that we can even have faith. He's the author of it, and he is the one who will see us through to the end. He's the perfecter. One last thing. Look at verse 3. Chapter 12, verse 3. The author writes, For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. It's not just that we have this great cloud of Old Testament saints. Jesus himself went to the cross and his life testifies to us of the value of living a life of faith. In chapter 4, the author says this, Therefore, since we have a great priest, a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, 
but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We find the strength we need in our ability to endure this race by looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who was tempted in all things as we are and suffered all things on our behalf. Let's fix our eyes on him. So why are we preaching from this text today? I have here on this table some books. And these books contain the membership of Rock Prairie, handwritten, some of it in beautiful calligraphy. If you want to come see it after service, please do. It's beautiful. 170 years of members in these books. And this page has the 17 pastors, senior pastors who have served this body in 170 years. I would have thought that number would have been much higher. How about you? And this page has the deacons who have served this body. Most of the rest of the page, all the rest of the pages are filled up with members, names, and dates. And those are all related to people who have been members, joined this church in membership over the years. And these were real people. People who had struggles not unlike ours. People who faced sins and encumbrances. But most importantly, people who looked to Jesus as the author and perfecter of their faith. And they are, for us, a part of our great cloud of witnesses. Their lives testifying to us of the unsurpassed value of living a life of faith. Two men whose names are written in this book, both as members and as deacons, are retiring from their deacon roles today and will become honorary deacons for the remainder of their lives. They are men who have served Christ by serving this church family for many years. These are men who have run the race with endurance, laying aside the encumbrances and sins which so easily entangle. They have sacrificially served this body helping to guide us through some of the most amazing mountaintop experiences and some of the darkest valleys imaginable. And through it all, they've encouraged the rest of us to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. The names of these two men are Steve Wirtz and Harold Toll. At this time, I'd like you to direct your attention to the screens on either side of the stage as we pay honor to these two men of God. Being a deacon is not necessarily an easy thing. You're responsible for the body. I would say it is a level of, uh, it's another level you hold yourself to. It's an honor almost, you know, you, when the, if God asks you to be a deacon, so on, it, it's an honor in your life. Oh, it was a big, uh, it was a big deal. I mean, to be considered uh, as a part of that group. It, it has affected my life. At the time, of course, it was your dad and, and Bob Whitehead and Brian and, and uh, Tom Smith and Lisa Ford. And uh, those guys were just, uh, well, they were, they were all just tremendous, you know, tremendous 
Christians and great people, and so just be considered and very special. It has been trying times, but you got to make decisions that you do not want to make. But the Lord has told me, you know, it, you got to do it. And the people see you as a deacon when you know you're you're not even uh, you don't you don't think about it. So it's a uh, I would say it is a level of. Uh, it's another level you hold yourself to. I remember Steve changing the locks on the, the door of a young woman's house who was scared of a, a, an abusive relationship she was in. Served on committees together. We've rebuilt houses together in Louisiana. And just so many things. And I just don't think the average person realizes uh, how many crises a deacon at this church gets called on to deal with and that's really the way it's supposed to be you know the deacon's not supposed to talk about the crises he's helping to deal with he's just supposed to get in the trenches and pray and give wise counsel i believe we saw the lord work several times everybody's not happy with this and that and you gotta make a decision and stand with your decision yeah uh, there's a couple of them we had a there's people sometimes we have to deal with things that happen in the church and I know we dealt with a situation where it was just really difficult a lot of nights I could not sleep and I did a lot of praying you know this is happening and I just can't believe this is happening and so on that was my toughest toughest time as a, being a deacon I believe Adam Harlow is a uh, a perfect example when he got the second diagnosis of uh, leukemia, it really just devastated every, all of us. And uh, I think the Lord just carried him and the family through that. I look back on that, and I think the Lord uh, dealt with us in a, in a tremendous way. I think he carried us through that. Now my mom get saved and go up to heaven with me. <laughs> that's, the, that's the important first thing. That's what I want. I want to see him in heaven. The best memory of the church is when we made the move from out there in town when the Lord said, okay, you got this much money. Use that money. We had sold the parsonage, and we had a building fund, and uh, we had placed the first bid on that building, and, and uh, they responded to us and told us, uh, no, you didn't bid enough. Uh, we're going to put it out for bids again. Uh, it's worth a lot more than you bid initially. So we were in a meeting and we decided we would bid everything we had in our building fund. And if the Lord wanted to bless it, he, he could. But there was nothing more. So we gave everything we had and it was up to the Lord. And really down to the pennies was the quote. And I forget what it was now, but it was like 182 something, something, something. And they called and said, you got it. We want you to have that building. And it was just like the Lord had really just uh, blessed us in such a major way. At that point, I seen the church was growing. We were starting to get young families coming in. And that, that is the best thing I see right now is young families. A lot of kids. 
and churches grow if you can get young families in there. We just had a fundraiser for $400,000 right on top of, you know, we just paid off this debt a year or so ago, and, and uh, wow, $389,000. We put a request out, and the Lord just uh, delivered for us. I mean, the Lord did it for us. This, you know, the last two, three weeks, boy, man, there's a lot of kids here, a lot of young married people with four or five kids and family, and, and this is where they need to be. They're teaching their kids. I've been attending Rock Prairie for 43 years. So I was attending Rock Prairie when my daughter was born in 81. And uh, my son was born in 83. And uh, your dad told me one Wednesday night, he said, Steve, uh, be here as much as you can. Bring your family. Raise them in this church. Do as much as you can to integrate this church. And uh, the Lord will bless you uh, with your family hadn't done everything right, I know that, but I try my best, and I ask if I go trying times, I do a lot of praying at night, <laughs> a lot of it, why I lay in bed and I pray about what's going on and everything and so on, in the world too. I need to be more, op more optimistic that the Lord's going to carry us through, because I'm always looking back thinking, well, Lord, you carried us through in such a major way. And it's just from time to time again. Yeah. Okay. I just love the Lord, and I want to be go to heaven, and I want more people that get there to more. Sometimes it was difficult, but uh, it was uh, you. You always felt the Lord was blessing our efforts, and. Uh, it was good to be a part of something that was uh, uh, working and working well. And for 40 years, I felt like, uh, I mean, we, there were some stumbling parts, but for the most part, look at where the Lord's brought us in 40 years. My goodness, we were a church of 60 or 70 people and, and uh, out in the country. And, and uh, now we got this, uh, this you know, a lot of people, a lot of kids. Uh, I heard he mentioned there was 90 kids in the last uh, in the last uh, last week. 90 kids alone, and uh, three or four hundred people, and we've got a great pastor now, and a, you know a great staff, and uh, there's uh, a lot of hope. So yeah, I'm encouraged. This time I'd like to invite Harold and Linda and Steve and Carolyn and their families to come to the stage.
Harold, on behalf of Rock Prairie Church, this is a small token of our appreciation for all of your years of faithful service to this body. Would you like to share any words with us? This is a hard day for me. The Lord's really blessed me. And as I said in that thing, you know, I want to see you all in heaven with me. That's what it's all about, is the afterlife. Same thing, Steve. On behalf of Rock Prairie Church, we want to thank you for all of your years of service and, and any words of wisdom for us. Thank you. Thank you for allowing me to serve. I, I really never felt worthy. So uh, this has been um, something wonderful to be a part of. Thank you. And at this time... <laughs> This time I'd like to ask our pastors and deacons and their wives to join us on stage and you know, pray over Harold and Linda and Steve and Carolyn. I do want to say, as these guys are coming up, that none of these guys are leaving us. They're still going to be here. They're still going to be active members of this congregation. They're just entering a new phase of, of service at this time. deacons, Tom List, uh, pray over Steve and Carolyn as they enter this new transitional stage of life. And then another of our deacons, Christopher Salisbury, is going to be praying over Harold and Linda. Dear Heavenly Father, we just humbly come up here, Lord, today to just lift up Steve and Carolyn, Lord, and just, and just Thank you so much for their their service to this body, their Steve's mentorship to me personally and to the other deacons. I just am so thankful for the guidance and leadership he has showed, not only in the deacons but also on the you know the, to do the salary committee and just just in serving in all the other areas that he served in. And Carolyn, with her service to uh, the missions committee, Lord, and Christmas at Rock Prairie, and all the other different committees that she helped served on, and just showed up and volunteered, Lord, they've been just true, true servants, and we're so thankful for the for the time they have given us with that, Lord. We just ask that you just bless that their their time now as they move into a new phase of life, Lord, of retirement and being in Florida some, and and seeing their kids and helping their kids out, Lord, and we just ask you just bless them 
for the service they have given you, Lord. And we are thankful for that. They've just the the legacy they leave, Lord, is just amazing. And we just thank you so much for that. And we just ask you to just help them through the next phase of their life. In Jesus' name, I pray. Dear God, I want to lift up to you, Harold and Linda. Thank thank you for the way they have both followed you. Thank you for their faithfulness and their commitment to you and to this church, your body. Thank you for the wisdom that you've given both of them. Uh, I pray that you would continue to pour out your wisdom onto them as they enter this next stage um, of their service. I thank you for the legacy that they have um, that's evident um, through the generations of tolls that are here in part because of Harold and Linda and the grandchildren and uh, children that are serving in other areas um, outside of this area. I just thank you for the many years of service that they've offered um, and served in this body. I pray that you'd bless them as they enter this uh, new phase of their life. Uh, They're not done. I know they're going to continue serving you in many ways, and I pray that you would continue to bless that. I thank you, Lord. Amen. Well, as we're uh, giving some hugs up here, I'm going to invite the worship team to come up on stage, and we're going to close the song here. We, uh, what else could we do? We asked Harold what song that he wanted us to close in today, because, I mean, w- we had no choice. And he, uh, he came back, he said, It Is Well With My Soul was the song that he chose. And I love that. I think that's so appropriate. Sometimes we think of It Is Well As My Soul as a song that's just about, um, like, being okay in tragedy, but really it's a song about being content in whatever comes our way. Right? When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. And I think that for both Harold and Steve, their legacy of ministry here that uh, uh, in some ways is still just beginning. They're not going anywhere and they've got more work to do, uh, but has certainly been an example of that. There have been really, really good times. They've been really, really hard times. And yet... God has taught them to say and has taught us to say, no matter what our lot in life, it is well with my soul. So why don't we go ahead, church, let's stand and let's sing together, it is well with my soul.